Go. Okay. I'd like to welcome you. We do um, a midweek Bible study for Shepherd's Chapel here in North Wales, Pennsylvania. We've been going through a couple of different books um, throughout the last year and a half, and we find ourselves today in the book of Revelation in um, a difficult chapter, chapter 17. Um, again, I want to preface everything we say by asking you to remember that we're dealing not in comic book way or fashion with regard to the way John is writing this. And I say that because too often when I've seen things on the book of Revelation, it's done almost like comic book or graphic novel style. And what I mean by that, it's, it's just like fantastic images. And while they were fantastic in one sense to John, they nevertheless had meaning to the people, and we need to understand that. John is not writing a book that the people of the first century didn't understand what's going on. They, they understood, and, and they, one of the things that they understood is he's writing in a veiled language, and he's also writing in a way that is far more figurative than it is literal. Now, again, think of the context. Where is John writing this from? John is writing this in exile. John is one of only one or two of the apostles that haven't been martyred. Everybody else has been martyred. You're not a friend of the empire of Rome if you're a Christian. Why not? Your competition. Who are your competition for? Your competition for the Caesars and the reign of the Caesars. These are individuals that were fine with being deified by the people. That they would talk as if the Caesars were God themselves. And I say all of that because again, when we read through the language here, it really is kind of otherworldly and fantastic language. Let's pray, and then you'll get a flavor of it if you haven't read through any of 17 yet. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, believing that you are able to give us eyes to see with and hearts to understand these things. These are difficult things, but they are here for a reason, and part of that reason, we believe, is the encouragement of your saints and to teach us that in the end, right will prevail. Jesus will be recognized as victorious, and all the glory and all the honor will be given to the triune God and your people will be exalted before their enemies. We commit these things to you now, asking that you would bless us and teach us your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let me read these words and just, I want you to listen to them. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of, the, uh, of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, who adorned and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to the de destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lord, lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and power. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast. 
until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, one of the things you always have to remember in apocalyptic language, you have to be looking for definitions because sometimes the author is saying, this means this. And if this means this, then that's what it is. And you can't make up something for your own understanding or your own creativity. Now, in introducing this whole section that we'll call simply because it's referred to in the chapter as Mystery Babylon, and what is that? We need to understand that when we're looking at the Bible, and let me put it as simply as I know how, there have only ever been, since the fall, okay, go back to the Garden of Eden, prior to the fall, man and woman created, loved God, fell into sin. Since the fall, with the exception of the Son of God who was incarnate, and therefore a man himself, God-man, with the exception of him, everybody on planet Earth falls into one of two categories. Would we agree on that? You either are a person who believes in God or a person who doesn't believe in God. And in that sense, we might say if we had to put them into two different cities, one, the inhabitants of that city believe in God. The other, the inhabitants don't believe in God. We would create what Charles Dickens spoke of in his book, A Tale of Two Cities. And the Bible is like that. It's really a tale of two cities. Two cities that are made up of two different peoples. One that are God followers, one that are God haters. People that don't follow God. Would we agree on that? I think we would. Let me give you some examples. In the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, you see two different individuals that are personified as women. One is named Wisdom, one is named Folly. Wisdom the characteristics of wisdom is she is a follower of her God. She does things that are right. She is looking out not only for herself, but her family, her neighbor. Folly, on the other hand, is portrayed as what? She's portrayed as a harlot, as a prostitute as one who says to the fool on the street, 
My husband is away for a bit. Come, drink, stay at my house, sleep with me, and so forth. And the idea in that book, the book of Proverbs, is that anything against God is portrayed as immorality or fornication. Something that is against God, but it's portrayed in sexualized terminology. Well, let's look at another scenario in the Old Testament. There is a time where Elijah, when he does battle, if you will, with the prophets of Baal, after that he's worn out and he's convinced that he's the only one on the scene that honors God. And he's tired and he's perhaps a bit frustrated and at some point he even sounds suicidal. Lord, take me. And God recognizes his condition, allows him to eat, allows him to sleep, but also tells him something that's very important. A theme throughout the entire book of the Bible. Elijah, there's not only you, there's 7,000 others in the country, in the nation, that have not bowed their knee to Baal. Who's Baal? Baal's one of the false prophets, or false idols of the day. And we need to understand what's going on there. Again, there's always even in the worst of conditions, a people for God. We go into the New Testament. The Son of God himself arrives on the scene. But with the Son of God on the scene, everything is not rosy, is it? There are individuals that are following him everywhere. There are individuals that are convinced that he's not the Son of God, that they, in fact, are the real followers of Abraham. And there's this ongoing verbal battle until they have a golden opportunity to kill him. But once again, there are followers of Jesus and then many followers of Satan. Fast forward yet again. In the book of Revelation, you have two cities that are talked about. One city is identified as Babylon. The other city is identified as Zion. What's significant about Babylon? Do you recall? Think back to where we introduced the Babylon. Who is the king? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. 
And at some point, early on in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar says something that catches God's attention. He's looking out one day, and he says, Oh, great Babylon, which I have built. And we need to understand that when we talk about Babylon throughout the Bible, and in particularly in our study in Revelation, it is everything that is anti-Christ, anti-Christian, standing against Almighty God. It is the personification of self-achievement. If we had somebody to write a song for Babylon, we could hear, if you know the song and you know the perform you know the performer by name, but you may not be familiar with the song. But you can Hear the refrain when Frank Sinatra used to sing, I did it my way. No reference at all to God. I did it my way. How did you become rich? I did it my way. How did you achieve such power? I did it my way. How is it that you got elected? president or chancellor or premier. I did it my way. How is it that you accumulated great wealth? How is it that that was even a goal of yours? That was something that was important to me. I did it my way. What about why are you here in the first place? God created you and the individual just laughed and said, you believe in that silly stuff. I don't believe in that at all. And what you have is this picture, and I want to show you right here what I'm talking about, because here the chapter begins as it did, and I want you to hold your place in 17 and go over to chapter 21. And I want you to follow with me while I begin reading chapter 21 at verse 9, and then we'll go back again to chapter 17. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the New Jerusalem. What is the New Jerusalem? The New Jerusalem is you, if you're a believer. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, 
and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God its radiance like a most rare jewel there is apocalyptic language used here to show us the magnificence, the importance, the preciousness of the people of God. Now contrast that with what John introduces us to in 17, using identical language, I might add. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And he carried me into the wilderness. And then he says this, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast who was full of blasphemous names. And what's talked about here, this woman, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, of the earth's abominations. He's saying it is this people, characterized here as a harlot, as a whore, as a prostitute, with a headband that has a name written on it. A headband for a prostitute would have been normal in the first century. That's part of how they identified themselves. Well, this prostitute has the name Mystery Babylon. Or Babylon the Great. But it's in contrast to the New Jerusalem. There's only two people on earth. There's those that believe and obey God, and there are those who disobey and hate God. And you're either one or the other. It's just like there are those who are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and there are those that still have upon them the mark of the beast. But there's only two. And it's important that you understand that, because if we don't understand that, then we're looking at this and saying, boy, this is kind of interesting. You know, he's talking about, you know, this, this woman, and she's all dressed up in her finery, and, and she's just committing all kinds of sexual immorality and so forth, and look at this, she's wearing jewels and scarlet, and what kind of imagery? He's using language, he's using figurative language. He's saying, here is a woman dressed up in beautiful garb, but her goal is seduction. Her goal is to draw the heart away from God. Now, you and I live in a world, now think about this for a moment with me, you and I live in a world where many people get up in the morning, they go to work, they send their kids off to school, they make X amount of dollars, they live their lives all without reference to God. Isn't that true? On Sunday mornings, when I was a little boy, 
you could go through a development and there weren't a lot of people at home because a lot of people were going to church. A lot of people don't go to church anymore. A lot of people that call themselves Christians don't go to church anymore. I've been amazed at, at how many people I know who would call themselves Christians that since the pandemic, they just don't go to church anymore. They stay home. They do church their way. Whatever their way is, doesn't make any sense to me. It's certainly not biblical. But they've just bought into, you know, the government said we don't go to church. Now we won't go to church. But forget those people. There are many individuals that have absolutely no regard for God. I read a statistic to my wife the other day. I had to read it three times. I thought it was a misprint. It said something to the effect of uh, people, adult people living together are, are, you know, the gist of it was are, are far more cohabitating than they are living as married couples. The statistic was that only 21% of those living together now are married. 21%. 21%. One in five compared to, I think it was 30 years ago, it was like 47%. Or closer to 50%. But down to 21%. Marriage doesn't matter anymore. Even though marriage still matters to God. But marriage doesn't matter to men. And so, again, we need to understand that when we're reading through the, this chapter, that John, first of all, is using apocalyptic language. John is using figurative language. He's painting a picture because he wants us to be reminded, again, of those who believe in God, those who don't. He wants us to remember the distinction between folly and wisdom in the book of Proverbs. He wants us to remember the difference between those at the time of Christ who believed in Jesus and followed Jesus and those who didn't. He wants us to understand that there are, and I'll just say it, in homey vernacular. There are the saints and there are the ain'ts. You either are or you aren't. You're either in the kingdom or you're not in the kingdom. You're either part of Mystery Babylon or you're part of the New Jerusalem, the Zion of God. And this particular section here that we're looking at now, tonight is simply the beginning of our introduction, verses 1 through 6. He then explains in a little bit more detail, and again, while it is, I think, specific to some measure to the people that he's initially writing to 2,000 years ago, 
nevertheless has lessons for us to glean from. In chapter 18, we're talking about the mourning of Babylon. Mourning as in grieving, M-O-U-R-I-N-G. And then in chapter 19, the ultimate celebration. We need to ask and then try to answer some of the questions pertaining to Babylon. What is the feature that distinguishes this great prostitute, Babylon? Number one, she exerts universal influence. One of the things that I'm amazed with is the seduction of the present age. It really doesn't take much to distract people, does it? And we got all kinds of distractions. John Bunyan in his excellent book, Pilgrim's Progress, refers to a fair, Vanity Fair. And in Vanity Fair, you can get whatever you want, as much as you want, whenever you want. Pretty much the day and age in which we're living, isn't it? You can get whatever you want, whenever you want, for as much as you want. Who's going to stop you? Only your conscience. And your conscience is either driven by a fear of God or no fear of God. Babylon seduces and draws people into idolatry. And idolatry throughout the scriptures is often couched as sexual immorality, or fornication and that doesn't mean literal sexual immorality literal fornication but it's language that denotes that you have no interest in your supreme and holy and righteous partner who ought to be God What else do we know about the great prostitute? It says she functions in partnership with the beast. She's actually sitting upon this beast. What beast is this? It's the beast that we're first introduced to in chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn over there with me. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. And who did we say that was? We said that was the Antichrist. And what exactly is the Antichrist? Well, John says there are many Antichrists. You know, we can look at what's happening in the world around us. We can see, for example, right now in the headlines. 
something absolutely horrific is happening over in Ukraine. Quite frankly, really not since, I don't think, on the scale at least, um, since World War II, when Hitler decided he's just going to take over one country after the next. When I was watching somebody the other night on TV, and this fellow's from the State Department, and he says, we, we, we just probably need to understand that at some point, Russia is going to um, control and, and, and dictate what's going on in the Ukraine. And he was just very matter-of-fact about it. And I remember going to the Holocaust Museum years ago and watching, you know, the, the one map uh, room where it was showing that upon this date, you know, Hitler and his army marches into this country and this country and this country. And I'm thinking, what do we do and how do we stop this? And quite frankly, I'm glad that the world is stepping up and, and trying to stop it in some measure. But, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're looking at a situation in which, you know, here's an individual that is just doing things in a, in a rather satanic fashion. Wouldn't you say? I don't, I don't think that they're doing anything with reference to any fear of God. Well, in chapter 13 of Revelation, when we're introduced to the Antichrist, again, we said, I don't know that this is so much one individual as it is throughout the ages, there will be those individuals that rise up from time to time and do what? They will act as if they are in the place of God. I can do whatever I want. And we see these things happening, right now at least, on a small scale. We saw this weeks ago, when we saw what was happening in Australia. I was absolutely appalled when police and military we're, we're going around house to house, business to business, telling people, you absolutely have to stay off the streets. Martial law. Martial law, government does whatever the government wants. The last week or two, what's happening in Canada without any regard to any kind of human rights? What's happening all the time in China? And we see these things happening, and we don't make the connection between those things that are happening in real time with what's happening in the Bible as John is seeing this situation going on in which individuals are being subjected to anti-Christian authoritarian power. And that's the picture that John is beginning to portray here. And Lord willing, we'll pick up the next time in our study. But again, read through in the week ahead, and it's difficult. And we'll try to work through it together. Chapter 17, 18, 19 
of Revelation. It all ties together, and we'll try to make some sense out of it in the coming weeks. I just want to say as we close, again, if you want to catch up with any of the things that we've done thus far, you can go to um, Shepherd's Chapel, Bill Rudolph on YouTube, or Shepherd's Chapel NW on YouTube, or uh, Shepherd's Chapel NW on Spotify. You simply want to listen. Again, thank you for your time today, and let's just close in prayer. Father, we pause now to give you thanks for this time together in your word. We ask that you would bless it to the end that we would be better than when we came in and better than when we began listening today. We pray in Jesus' name.